1: Hey there, everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And
0: I'm Scott Schaefer. And tonight on The Breakdown, Sacramento District Attorney Anne Marie Schubert. She's been a controversial figure of late in her hometown over the Stefan Clark shooting.
1: But she's also got a fascinating life story. She's taken on family members at the dinner table and the ballot box. We're going to get into all of that But first, Scott, let's talk about a debate that's roiling San Francisco, but really could be happening anywhere in the Golden State, a fight over where to put a homeless shelter. We actually had a KQED reporter at an event last night where uh, the community was hearing about this. Caroline Champlin, uh, this is the top of her story. Let's listen to a piece of that report. We here! We here! Hundreds of people crammed
2: into a meeting hall at the Delancey Street Foundation where city officials explained more about how the 24-7 center would work. Police patrols, no drug use allowed, neighbors would have a say in the design. The night began pretty civilly. Then London Breed arrived. Do
3: you want me to talk or not? Yes. If you don't want to hear me talk, then leave.
1: And that wow. was Mayor London Breed. And this is, we should say, this navigation center that the city is proposing to put down um, kind of by uh, the ballpark-ish area near Delancey Street, along the Embarcadero. Street, yeah. along the embarcadero. Um, and this has really brought out the community on both sides of this issue, we should say. I mean, clearly people were jeering her, but there were also people cheering. And- they,
0: they were, although, you know, there's a bit of history to this. I mean, obviously, London Breed got elected mayor, and this was the top issue, top three issues really homelessness in San Francisco and so she knew she had to solve this she is get on the ballot again in november so this is there's some urgency to this and there was another meeting a few weeks ago, and it was also chaos. Uh, and the, her, her, when she showed up this week, it was unannounced. She kind of walked in. It wasn't planned. The crowd didn't know she was coming. And uh, it was, boy, it was, uh, as David Chu likes to say, a knife fight in a phone booth. Just a personal, <laughs> really personal, nasty San Francisco politics, which it can be sometimes.
1: But this is not just about San Francisco, as I kind of alluded to, right? This is a fight we're seeing all over the state. We have seen the governor put in half a billion dollars to expanding shelter capacity. In cities and counties around California, we have seen just a lot of attention on this. Um, our guests later, you know, Amory Schubert told us about a similar situation in Sacramento, where neighbors are concerned about these shelters. But I think there's also a sense from supporters of them who are also neighbors. I mean, that's what's really interesting here that that, that folks need we need to step up and that there needs to be a shared sort of um, you know burden on all neighborhoods and well, right. cities. Right, and
0: there are already a fair number of homeless people there, and there's concern. Among the opponents of the navigation center, that this is going to lead to more crime, but there are already lots of folks on the street, and you get the sense sometimes that everyone wants homelessness solved, but they really they just want—they don't want it in their neighborhood. Right. They don't want to be part of the solution. They just want them gone. Right, and it's—it's it's very tough. You know, we've got these. Both sides now have GoFundMe pages. <laughs> you know, the opponents of the navigation center raised what, like one hundred
1: and sixty thousand dollars? Well, the
0: supporters, I think, outraised. The they they yeah. outraised, uh, and they got ten thousand dollars from uh, Mark Benioff from Salesforce, but, you know, it's kind of this arms race now, uh, both financially and I think that, you know, if I have a criticism of Mayor Breed, uh, because I know some folks who live right across the street from where this navigation center is proposed, and they support it. But they feel that the mayor's office didn't really do an adequate job of doing the organizing that needs to be done, finding your supporters, getting them to the meetings. They didn't really do that. And I think they're paying the price for that now.
1: Yeah. And I think politically, that's sort of just a lesson for any mayor, um, board of supervisors, city council, even the governor, that this is an issue that I think a lot of people, not just in San Francisco, but in California, do want to solve. and, And they do want to be part of the solution. But not everybody, but but they also want to be heard. And, and it is, a, a you know, it is a hard thing to ask folks to take that burden in their neighborhood.
0: It is. But, you know, ironically, this meeting was held at Delancey Street, which employs ex-offenders and has been there for decades right. and is very much a part of the community. I'm not saying they're the same thing necessarily, but these are people who are also in the criminal justice system and, you know, they needed a break and they got one. And... You know, it's, of course, they, they've they been there probably longer than most people that live there now, but nonetheless. Well, and
1: I think that is something to note. This part of District 6 in particular has really gentrified in recent years. There's been huge, you know, condo developments that have gone up, and I do think that the demographics there have changed, and I'm sure there are people that have lived there a long time on both sides of the issue, too. But, you know, I, again, I just, I think that this is a scene we're going to continue to see play out, and it really um, is incumbent upon local leaders to do that outreach and to try to find ways to approach these issues so that people will embrace them. Well, and it's
0: very much a part of this housing, uh, affordable housing uh, issue as well, because people don't want that in their neighborhoods necessarily either.
1: Right. Microcosm of the bigger thing. All right. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Sacramento District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert. A word of warning. She is a prosecutor. She does talk about some pretty upsetting uh, criminal cases in detail. Um, But please stay with us if you can. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio.
0: Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and our guest this week is Sacramento County District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert. Welcome to The Breakdown. Thanks for having
2: me. I really appreciate it. So we want to know a
0: little bit about you before we get to some of the work you do. Uh, You came from a really big family, I think one of seven.
2: Yeah, you've been doing your research. Um, We can
0: count. Tell us us about your family. Tell us um, about growing up. You grew up here in the I grew up here in 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 Sacramento.
2: I grew up in the Arden area. Went to local schools. My father, my mom and my dad are both passed. My mom passed when I was 16. She had breast cancer. And my dad passed in 2000. My, my dad was an orthopedic surgeon in town. He was really involved, right, in like He the was very involved you know, one of the, in, in the health system. I think the proudest thing I am of my father was that he was the founding board member of Sierra Health Foundation. Oh, wow. Which is obviously this incredible organization that gives tremendous um, good things to the community. Um, so I have six siblings Uh, Where are you in line? uh, I'm I'm not the last, but I'm the second to last. (laughs) I have three brothers and three sisters. And um, for the most part, except for one brother, we all live here locally.
0: And you were, I think, a teenager when your mom died, no?
2: I was 16, yeah. Yeah. My my mom got sick. I can tell you to the day, remembering the day it happened. But um, she got sick when I was 12. I was going to school at St. Ignatius, which is a small elementary school here. um, And at the time she was given six months and you know fortunately she lived five years and she did some amazing things she was a softball coach and did you play softball i played a lot of sports um i was short but i was could run and gun basketball so (laughs) um, i played basketball for loretto at the time which you know we i I love the sport we weren't a great team but i love the sport of course you're you grew up in a catholic
0: family very catholic (laughs) how did that play out
2: um you know i mean i had a the greatest thing I got out of it was not just my education, but just a sense of values. And, and I think all religions teach very similar values, which is just treat other people with respect and dignity. Do you still go to mass? Is like, are you... um, I do. My son, yeah, my older son, uh, on his own, decided to become Catholic, and so um, he's I, about what, fifteen? He's fifteen, and you know, I supported him through that process, cool. and he went. and It was quite a commitment. And so um
0: when when you say he decided to become Catholic so you didn't raise how did you raise
2: him No I mean I you know I don't think it's a secret that I'm gay and yeah, so we were going to get to that um, yeah, I'm sure you were but um, <laughs> but so I have two kids and i have the kids obviously have a mom another mom we're not together anymore but we're as i say we're great Mm co-parents and so we weren't deeply religious i mean i believe very much in faith and i've having suffered the loss of two parents i have no doubt that at the end of our lives there's nothing more than faith and so i supported my son in the process because um you know i think it's a good thing i absolutely believe that faith no matter what it is is a good thing and a healthy thing for people.
1: Well, I mean, getting into, as you got older, I know you went to, um, Catholic University, yeah, yeah. USF I for did. for law school, um, but you mentioned that that you are gay, and I know your brother was oh, a very here big. We well, he, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's such an interesting thing because when which, we were researching you, you know, we know your name, right. and we knew your brother's name, Frank right. Schubert, but I don't think I we had no made the connection. So for our listeners, he was the political director for Prop Eight, which banned that gay would be marriage. Yes on Prop the Eight. Yes on Prop Eight. <laughs> yes. That's right. Um, but you guys still
2: have a good relationship. It sounds you like know, he's he's the oldest. Um, you know, there's seven kids. I love my brother very much. I obviously disagree with him on right. that issue and actually other issues he he doesn't he doesn't support the death penalty. I support mm. it because that's what the voters have chosen. um so we don't agree. He's obviously quite conservative um but my brother um, I've never doubted my brother loves me and accepts me and loves my children and so. We can disagree all day long on that issue. Um, How did did
0: that go over in your family? Yeah, I was going to ask. When did you come out, and how did your—was your mom still around? Probably not, right?
2: No, my mom wasn't around. My um, dad—you know, this is a long time ago. You're going to date myself here, but—
0: I'm older. You know, he
2: was uh, very Catholic himself, so he wasn't so supportive of it. But, you know, to be very um, personal, you know, when he was on his deathbed— I actually wrote him a letter um, because I felt I needed to make peace Mm. with our relationship. We had a great relationship, but I wanted him to know how much I loved him. And um, he made it very clear to me that I've never done anything in my life that disappointed him. And he was incredibly proud of me. So, you know, I look back on it. I wish he knew my kids um, because in some ways they're very much like him Mm. and um, all all that stuff. But um,
0: how did your brother deal with your being gay?
2: Oh, he's known that for a year. I mean, this is not a secret Yeah. To my family. Yeah. I mean, it's not like I, you know, this happened last week. Yeah. I've been like this since. Did know, he basically like right after law school? So,
1: so did he like when when the Prop Eight thing was was gearing up? I mean, did he come to you and say, "I'm doing this"? Yeah, did he you did. know? I okay. mean, he
2: actually. I mean, at the time the Prop Eight was happening, which is was in two thousand eight. You yeah, were a like, deputy DA at that point. I was a deputy DA, but I also at the time, I had. Um, thought about running for a judge spot that was going to come open. And so I actually had started kind of a, you know, a campaign thing for it. And because of the rules of ethics related to judges, I couldn't speak publicly about issues that were mm. pending. And so I was asked a lot of questions about that. I mean, my whole life, I didn't, my brother out of me plenty of times. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. It just, it came out. I mean, it's an interesting twist, I guess. Um, but but I never really could comment on it. Right at the time that that was all happening, my my kids' other mom, Julie, and I were together raising our kids, just like any other family. You know, barbecues and schools and trying yeah. to make sure they learn how to behave and not disrupt the restaurant and all those kinds of things. But <laughs> tell me if you <laughs> figured that one out. <laughs> well, no, I haven't. But but so it it wasn't um, something I could really talk about. And you know, I remember at one point I got very upset with them. This is a while later when, you know, he made some comment publicly about, about me. And I was very upset with him. And he knows this because we've talked about it. And I think for me, what matters the most is that, you know, I'm no different than anybody else. We're, we're all the same. At the end of the day, we all want to raise our kids in a healthy, happy environment. And we want nothing better than our children to be more successful than we are. And so, I've, I mean, I would say that we've had a healthy sometimes very difficult relationship, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't change that he's my brother. I want to come back to something
0: you said a moment ago, and I should tell people, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Scott Schaefer, along with Maurice Lagos. We're talking with Anne-Marie Schubert, who is district attorney for Sacramento County. A moment ago, you were talking about the death penalty, and you said that your brother is opposed to the death penalty, and that you are for it because that's what the voters chose, which made me wonder, like, do you personally have
2: an opinion about it? that's
0: different um, Oh man, the you,
1: know, you really I, skipped ahead. I had I like sorry. filed that question for later. No, I, no I have, but I had the same question. I do
2: support it, but I also um, I, I've said this before. I'm not a rabid dog about the death penalty. I believe having grown up in the criminal justice system, you know I'm almost at 30 years now, and having sat with family members and, and um, it's a rare event. you know it's mm-hmm. less than two percent of all homicide cases in this state that a DA's office seeks it and but it's also you know, time and time again, that California voters, as blue as we are as a state, that they have consistently said we want it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I became, ironically, I actually got involved in this policy debate because of my brother, because one year, I think it was back in 2011 or so, we were talking at Christmas. I'm like, what are you working on? He's like, I'm working on the death penalty. I go, what are you talking about? I go, oh, are you going to try to help fix it or something? Not
0: another ballot measure. And he's (laughs) like,
2: no, I want to get rid of it. I go, what? Are you kidding me? So
0: that was a surprise.
2: That to you. was very surprising. I mean, it wasn't like we would get into these criminal justice debates. My brother's not into criminal justice right. as a matter of policy, really, and so that's when I first got involved because I'm like, uh, I may not like agree with my brother, but he's on some of these issues. But he's very good at what he does, and so that's when I got involved, probably back in 2012 with Prop 34,
1: which was one of the first efforts at the time to abolish it. The public rejected that. So you're saying the public rejected it, but you also clearly came in on the side that you felt it was worth preserving.
2: Yes, because I think that, I mean,
1: if he looks at the facts of the crime and, and, you
2: know, you might have to edit some of this if I were to tell you them, because they're so horrific. I mean, when you meet someone like Sandy Friend, whose eight year old boy was walking home from school and is abducted by a serial sex offender, and then he's brutally, I don't mean anything other than brutally sexually assaulted and has been stabbed 70 times resulting in his throat being slit um and then a jury makes that decision that that's the Mm -hmm. that they are the ones that make the decision so um i i completely can appreciate people having different philosophical reasons religious reasons um but it has been the law of the land and and, you know, if that's the law, I'm going to enforce it.
1: Have you ever tried a case where a family, a victim's family said, we do not want you to seek the death penalty? And and does that play into a decision as a prosecutor? Because we hear a lot during this debate, what do victims want? And I think on the one hand, as a human being, you go, well, of course, the victims need a seat at the table. On the other hand, we have a justice system right. for right. a reason. It's not right. just martial law or whatever, right? Right. right.
2: So um, as a matter of practice, I've, I mean, I've had a couple cases my, myself personally, homicides. I was in homicide for a long time, but I had a couple where we were going to seek it. And then something changed along the way. Uh, one of the guys kind of decompensated a little bit. So we ended up resolving those for life terms. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've never actually tried a death case. Um, we do consider, I mean, we have a whole death review process in our office that we go through on every case. It's a very formalized process because we want consistency and um, you know, a lot of people are involved in the decision-making process. So we do consider victims' input. Does that automatically dictate? No, it right. doesn't.
1: Well, let me ask you, and then I, we want to talk about some other stuff, too. But, I mean, the the governor, in his remarks recently mm. where he announced he was putting this on hold, a decision right. I assume you disagree with, him everything you've just I said. I disagree with the manner that it was done, for sure. Yeah. But he talked a lot about the amount of people nationally that have been exonerated off of death row and that to him he felt— you know, he did not feel morally right signing death warrants and that he worries about whether people on death row are innocent. Um, I know our last governor said there's nobody innocent on death right. row in California. But as someone who's worked around DNA for a long time, I mean, look at the Kevin Cooper case, for example, down south. Um, which we don't know. Which we don't know, you know, results. but there's there's well, questions.
2: I mean, well, I don't have any questions about that. But, okay.
1: <laughs> but what I would say about
2: um, a blanket reprieve is that the governor any governor in California has the authority to commute or grant clemency on individual cases. And um, if you have serious concerns about a particular individual, then that's the appropriate thing to consider. But to do a blanket, and and I think for me, the most frustrating part about the whole method on which this was done is I found that um, essentially just kicked the victims to the curb. I mean, you know, they had a meeting the day before, and I think one... Mark Class might have been invited without even being told what it was for. And so you've got a man as and just, you know, representative of probably thousands of people out there. One person that's invited that has a person on death row who killed a family member. And he's given less than 12 hours notice. And he's waited, what, almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. And so I just found I mean, it's one thing for at least for me. If the voters, if it goes on the ballot again, the voters say, you know what, we're done with it, you know, let's move on, yeah. then I would accept that. But, um, and you know, I'm also bothered by the fact that the promise was made by the governor in running that he would not do that. Not do that. Let's go
1: back to why, like what. <laughs> drove you into gonna this work my brother for because <laughs> yeah, we're, we're done with Frank. We're not talking yeah, about Frank. Okay. No, I want to talk Although about why love to
0: talk to him. Yeah.
1: Right. But... but why did you like, what drew you to this work? Clearly you're very passionate about it, but like when you were in law school, um, did you well, think you wanted to be a prosecutor? I'm going to give you a confession here. Um,
2: I went to law school for the wrong reasons. I went to law school. I'm like growing up in my little household here and trying to figure, you know, it's... Not so We all went to college and, um, you know, I kind of figured, okay, there's two routes I'm going to take here. I'm either going to try to be a lawyer or a doctor. And my dad was a doctor. And I didn't do well and um, I just didn't feel like I did well with blood or science or anything like that. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go to law school because I just figured it was a, a job that I could get that I would have a decent income. And then I went to law school and... I don't know, a year or two into it, I decided to intern for this incredible judge in San Francisco named Lucy McCabe, mm. and I got bit, as I say, bit by the public safety bug, yeah. and I realized that this was a pretty cool gig. Well, and ironically,
0: hmm. you're still dealing with blood a lot.
2: Uh, and yeah, DNA. but I, you, I do okay with the photos much more than the actual, um, I don't think I could work in a corner's well, office you, or something
1: like that. But you really, though, made a name for yourself as one of the people um, who pushed DNA and helped bring it to the forefront as as a validated tool, do you think that has anything to do with your dad's being a doctor? Like, was that? Um, I mean, I definitely think that. Um,
2: you know, I I realized my ability to learn this stuff. I mean, I my first case was in nineteen mid nineties, in a, when I worked in another county, and it was a horrific, horrific uh, rape of a young teenager. And it was at that time, this is 25 years ago, I realized the power of the technology. Yeah. And, uh, was there realized, pushback? Um, well, at the time, um, we had to do these kinds of hearings in, in our world. They're called Kelly Fry hearings where you have to prove to the judge that the science is generally accepted. Mm-hmm. And so we had to bring in a bunch of scientists, people from all over the world to establish the reliability of this technology. Well, let's
0: let's talk about the, the most celebrated case in some ways. This is uh, the Golden State Killer, uh, Joseph James D'Angelo, cold case. Uh, for many, many years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk about how you broke that with using DNA and genealogy. And I realize we could talk for an hour about that, but just in general, like how, and what did it feel like to finally find the person who was responsible for all these horrific crimes?
2: Well, first of all, I'm going to caveat this by saying that the case is pending and he's accused. Okay. Um, I wouldn't say I broke the case. That's not an accurate statement. Um, There was a very um, very, very dedicated people for decades on this case. Um, you know, the the reality is, is that I mean, I, I guess I'm lucky because I got this cool job as the DA, but I also have this past of of doing DNA cases. And so, um, I met Paul Holes, who's the guy from Contra Costa that was really the kind of, one of the, yeah. And so we developed a relationship in terms of working, you know, together, uh, trying to find new leads and all this kind of stuff. And so. You know, he came to us, uh, my office, um, in November of 2017. I mean, he'd been working on it. Many people had been working on our sheriff's department and our law enforcement partners, and said, hey, I got this idea. And he pitched the idea. And that's when two folks from my office, Kirk and Monica, um, who were really the core group of the team, we said, yeah, let's do this. And so that's when it happened. I mean, what the was idea, the idea? The idea was to try to use genetic genealogy to lead us to the person. Okay.
0: How does that work? Like, take us walk us through that.
2: Um, what it, the basic concept so you had, you had is? Some, some DNA. So we had some DNA from one of the homicide cases, um, and you have to develop a. It's not your traditional type of DNA we use in a courtroom. It's a different kind of genealogy DNA, and then from that point, you use a genealogy database to see if there's anybody in that database. That has a relationship to your offender. Now, it doesn't mean we get to find out, you know, what Aunt Mary's DNA is. We just know that
1: there's a link there. That there
2: might be a relationship. And if you want to learn one scientific word today, it's this word called centimorgans. And that just tells <laughs> you the relationship between people. The more centimorgans you share, the greater relationship. I know, stop talking. So, no, 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 it's good. So I was, basically, that's kind of how it's the a idea good hatched. Word. And from there, you have to do what's called building of the trees. So you put this you know, profile in there. You might find out that you got a somebody that's a third cousin that might be related, but it, it may seem simple, but it's not. And
1: that led you in this case to a specific suspect. And I'm, I'm curious, like, did you guys know at that point, the sort of universe of victims? Did you have an idea? Cause it seems like more have been connected to him since then, or? Um, I think it's always been
2: known, you know, we obviously have known, the cases that were related by yeah. DNA and those kinds of things. But I think the, the the better and even more exciting topic is what's happened since that arrest is that, you know, we're changing the world yeah. on this technology. And we're giving people hope now that they never had or they thought they lost a long time ago. Really I mean, across amazing. this country... You know, there's been almost there's been over three dozen cases now solved because of this technology. Wow. All
1: right. Well, we got to move on because there's another case we do have to talk about, which is Stefan Clark, which has been um, a big issue here. This is a, a man who was shot and killed by two police officers. And in the past, uh, what, what? No, was Can't not talk about it. Um.
2: Well, I mean, you can ask. <laughs> yeah, you, know, yeah, yeah. I, you know, obviously we had a press conference. About yeah.
1: You had an hour long press conference. Right. Your office and the attorney general recently concluded that there was not a. Uh, sufficient evidence to charge the officers in the case. Right. Um, and I, I guess to, to start with, I mean, what you did in that was to come out and give an hour-long press conference and really walk through right. the details of why you reached the decision you did. And this is after we've seen protests, Royal sure. Sacramento. Can you just talk about, like, what, like how you approach that? Because it's very different than the way you've handled other officer-involved shootings, I think. Well,
2: I mean, I don't think there's any secret that this... That this particular cases has um really affected our community and mm-hmm. it's really affected our country and it's got a lot of attention locally and nationally and i felt very strongly that the public should understand how we got to the conclusion and you know so walking the walking folks through what the law is what the facts are you know it in a, in a way it's almost like a closing argument because we have we have ethical obligations as prosecutors and and I think I said this is that we have to follow the facts we have to follow the law whether we agree with the law or not and we cannot be biased and so we walked through that because i felt strongly that people should understand you know what are the facts because what may be out there in the media or out there in the public domain may not may not be accurate or may not com- be complete and there do was, you
0: there was also information about his life prior to that night and i'm wondering like why did you decide to include that as well
2: um because what was included in the press conference you know we have to look at it as the eyes of prosecutors what would if we charged these individuals with a crime what would a jury hear Mm -hmm. and that is a factor that we have to consider so you know i did as i said we did our very best to try to balance um dignity and humanity and and you know i mean to be honest some people were pretty upset about it and i understand it um but it is our responsibility and so we felt um we did our best to try to minimize that um obviously there was more information in the actual report but um, it was a very tragic situation
1: um all right, let's Quick move on. Quick 2020. Well, um, your political future, I mean, what what's next for you? Do you, oh. do you um, And we should say, you were a Republican. You changed your party preference recently to it's no party preference. It's funny because,
2: you know, people are like, oh, you're just doing it because of, you know, politics in California. I mean, I registered when I was 18. I mean, right. I re- that's what I did. I mean, my dad was a Republican. But if anybody really knows me, I am very socially liberal. I'm fiscally conservative. I just, you know, think we should just be mindful of what we spend. But I'm also very progressive in a lot of ways so i just felt very strongly that you know i should just align myself i've never it's a non-partisan job right but i got crucified tagged. i didn't vote for trump let's be clear okay i've i wrote in condoleezza rice because (laughs) i (laughs) believe well i just think the world of that woman i think she's incredible a leader and i wish she would run but i got tagged for something that wasn't i'm like quit labeling me that's Mm. not accurate so Um, I just felt like you know what I should just do what is really in my heart. Yeah.
1: All right, we uh, we like to end on a on a on a high note. So oh. before we uh, went on tape, we were talking about you know red that wine. we both like to drink a little red uh, wine to relax. So yeah. what's your favorite? Uh, what, what what do you enjoy on your oh, off time?
2: I think I, oh,
1: um, you mean alcohol? Well, or right. Yeah, in
2: general. What, um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm a pretty outdoorsy person. I like to do things like hiking and biking and. Kayaking and outdoor stuff and anything that gets you into the fresh air. So, but on occasion, I might uh, have a glass of wine. You'd mentioned your favorite red wine. My favorite red wine, I probably should not even confess to this, but uh, is a wine by a Guy named Oren Swift. It's called The Prisoner. <laughs> so it's probably ironic, but it's a very good one. Is it from the foothills around here? It's I think it is from the foothills. It's not a cheap bottle. So right. it's a very special type of thing, but it's really good. We'll look it thank up. You from There's great, your free right advertising. And yeah, no, I'm
1: just <laughs> hey. All right. Well, Sacramento District Attorney Anne Marie Schubert, thank you so much thanks for having thanks me, thanks guys. Appreciate it. And that'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzorati, and our engineers this week were C.O. Muller. Katie McMurrin and Rob Spate
0: Vinny Tong is our managing editor Ethan Lindsay is our executive editor and Holly Kernan is our chief content officer I'm Scott Schaefer you can find me on Twitter at Scott Schaefer
1: what a surprise and I'm Marisa Lagos you can find me on Twitter I'm at M Lagos that's a wrap for this week's political breakdown from KQED thanks for listening bye bye